So fall may have arrived. How many of you like fall? Yeah. How many of you like winter? What? You're kidding me. That many? How many of you like February? Ice and snow. Okay, I quit. Lord, we love you, and uh, God, we thank you for the changing of the seasons. It's, um, it's beautiful, really. And uh, we love the way you repaint our world uh, in these seasons. And Father, may we be encouraged by your involvement in our lives. May we be encouraged by what you're doing, God, within your body here. And Lord, we just continue to, to pray. And uh, we just ask for answers from you. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Um, <clears throat> so we're in Luke, of course. And real quick thing from last week. Uh, we studied about you know, Christ as being pretty confrontational in the, in the temple. And uh, last week there was an evil alliance that was created. And that consisted of Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians... And I believe Satan himself was present. And then there was an evil plan. And that evil plan was outlined in Luke 20, verse 19, where it says, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people, so they watched him, sent spies who pretended to be sincere. For two reasons, that they might catch him in something he said, and so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of Rome, of the governor. <clears throat> so there's an evil alliance, an evil plan. Then there was an evil execution to that plan. We read that in the opening salvo in Luke twenty twenty one. He says this, So they, meaning the Pharisees, sent their disciples to him, <clears throat> along with the Herodians, and asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no uh, no partiality but truly teach the way of God, and that was just uh, meaningless banter with them. And um, then we also learned uh, that in a parable last week, <clears throat> actually it wasn't a parable, it was, it was a, a question designed to stump Christ about the law. Seven brothers, the oldest brother married and died without producing an offspring, so according to the law, she should marry the next brother, the next brother, the next brother, seven brothers. And we just, we realized that that was just kind of an absurd thing to try to get Jesus to commit one way or another on the resurrection of man. And, uh, but he gave a brilliant answer. <clears throat> and it's in um, Luke 20, 37. He says, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham. He says, you, your problem is you're looking at heaven as if it's here. And <clears throat> there is no marriage in heaven, <clears throat> in, that, in that life, excuse me, <clears throat> there is no marriage. But then he, he's, he started with this scripture here that I began to read. And there's more to it here than we had time to go into last week, so just a little bit more of this. But Jesus said something to them <clears throat> that, I'm, I'm not sure they caught it, they probably did, but he said, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So if God remains the God of Abraham and Jacob and Isaac, then they are not dead, but alive and with God. God consistently identifies himself as I am, which is always the present. <clears throat> the end is understood and the, begin and the, and the future is understood. 
But God always, he said, my, actually, if you want to know who, who I am, I am. In Exodus 3, 6, he says it this way. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So we see there one example. His identity is the continuing to be, uh, continuing to be God of the three heroes of the Jewish faith. Then we learn in, remember in Luke twenty twenty six, and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but at his answer they became silent. I love it when truth silences people. <clears throat> it's just very nonviolent. Sometimes truth doesn't silence people, but sometimes it does. And uh, when, it, when truth silences people, there's no arguing if we just recognize it. So, we immediately go on to the next verse in Luke's account of this incident. And we would miss a very interesting exchange that helps us give us some needed content if we didn't go to Matthew 22 first, and that's also on your scripture sheet. In Matthew 22, 34, 40, immediately following this encounter in Luke, Matthew records something further. <clears throat> And it begins like this, Matthew 23, uh, 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. So what was the, what was the result of God speaking truth for some people? It silenced them. What was the other result? They said, we have to find another way. So they heard that the Sadducees had been silenced. And so the Pharisees gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, <clears throat> an expert in the law, asked him a question to test him. Have you ever been asked a question by a lawyer? Um, no, and nothing against lawyers and attorneys. This is what they do. But most of the time, I can't quite understand the question. Because the question is couched in such a way to fish out the answer they want. Right. So here is this attorney. He's an expert in the law. And they ask him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Now, keep in mind that every question Jesus has asked is meant to trap him into a conflict with the law. They're trying to find some way to discredit him. So my questions are, what did they think his answer might be with this question? And why did they choose this particular moment to ask that question? And I don't believe the Bible necessarily reveals the answer to that, but I personally believe that they were hoping he would say, keeping the Sabbath. <clears throat> what was their go-to sin? Finding people guilty of not keeping the Sabbath. And I think what they were hoping for. And they said, what is the most important law? I think they were hoping he would say, well, the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath is the most important law. But he didn't do that. The law concerning the Sabbath was their go-to gotcha law. And they wanted to punish, or when they wanted to punish or persecute someone. And by the way, the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and, and actually the scribes and the Pharisees, by interpreting the original law, created more laws that made it virtually impossible not to break at least one law if you got up and breathed on Sabbath. 
especially for a blue-collar Jewish person, because they were farmers. They were agriculturally committed. And you know farmers to this day that if you have a dairy farm, someone has to do the duty. It doesn't matter what your Sabbath is. And I think they were hoping for him to say something about the Sabbath, and then they could begin to bring up all of those past things that he had been accused of doing. Through the rules they added, they made it clearly impossible to be above the law. And by the way, for the record, Jesus on one occasion cleared up this whole thing in one sentence. Mark 2.27 says this, And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Just a perfect explanation. He basically says this, God doesn't need to rest. You need to rest. And God, by example, set up the Sabbath. Well, the problem with what they were doing is they'd created a burden of this law of rest. It was just one more thing. They had to be careful that they were not doing well. So here's Jesus' answer in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law of the prophets. Now his answer stumped them. And this is why it stumped them. They were trying to place upon him the burden of the law by the letter. And Jesus immediately said, that's not what this is about. So he answered in the spirit. By the way, this still happens today, does it not? His answer stumped them because Jesus, instead of focusing on the letter of the law, which can always be argued, by the way, focused on the spirit of the law. And the question might be, well, was this a new perspective on the law? Why didn't they think of this? Maybe is this something that Jesus is revealing for the first time? And the answer to that is no. In Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, he he quotes the law. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then in Leviticus, he quotes this law in his response to them. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. They, They knew this. They knew this. And who could possibly argue with this, by the way? No one. And in Matthew twenty-two forty-one, it says this, in typical rabbinic fashion, this is what he says. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. So, back up a bit. Sadducees are asking him a question about a woman who is married, who has six brothers, and they all die without producing children. And the ridiculous question is, so whose wife is she in heaven? And by the way, can I bring a little bit of reality to this? <clears throat> there was a friend of mine, and you know, because I'm older, I don't remember who it was or where it was. So you have to trust me. But there was a friend of mine that we were talking about divorce and remarriage. And in the United States, it's pretty clean. I'm not saying the process is clean. <laughs> I'm just saying that in the United States, you can have one marriage partner at a time. And what the Bible says is, 
A lady can have a man as a husband, and the man can have a lady as his wife, one at a time. Now, there are some weird areas in the country where they're not following that. But here, we can debate this issue until there's a church split over it, which, by the way, is not what God ever intended. But this friend of mine said, in his church, a man from the Middle East came with four wives. And he got saved. And he goes to the pastor and says, which one should I divorce? That's sticky now, isn't it? Letter of the law. So then, do you condone? See, the pastor says, well, if he says, I don't condone divorce, well, then should I keep all four? Well, I don't condone that either. Well, I guess I can't be a Christian. That's what it comes down to. And by the way, I wouldn't know what to tell this guy. <laughs> so, it isn't, it's not always as clean and tidy as you think it is. <clears throat> so, Jesus asks this follow-up question because he stumped them with the answer to, the, to theirs. He says, now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Verse 42 in chapter 22 of Matthew. Why do you, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, well, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. He's quoting Psalm 10, 1. If then David calls him Lord, says Jesus, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So the question is, why was this an unanswerable question for the Pharisees and scribes. Well, they could not answer it because they were not spiritual men. They were judges of the law. They were focused on the letter of the law, and their mission was to de destroy Jesus. And we know from verse 43 that it took the Holy Spirit to interpret, it, uh, to interpret its meaning for David. If you're not a spiritual man, you're not going to be able to answer this. But let's go back to what um, the example he says in verse 43. How is it then that David, what? In the Spirit calls him Lord. There are certain things only the Holy Spirit can reveal. Even to certain believers. Some believers are not nearly as receptive to hearing God's voice as others. They were not spiritual men, so they were stumped. Verse 43, he said to them, How is it then that David in, in the Spirit calls him Lord? So they're looking at one another, and this is no longer about discovering the truth. They're trying to stump Jesus. This is about winning the battle. Have you ever found yourself in a debate with someone that's not really wanting the truth? They want their truth. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to debate you, to persuade you, or to somehow corner you with perhaps the letter of a law. 
to where they can re- they can continue to think what their flesh tells them to think. By the way, you get into those debates, and if you're over, if you're doing this over lunch, just eat quickly and leave. It's going to be a long lunch, and probably not going to change anything. And this brings it back to where we left off in Luke. So let's pick it up there. So this was all Matthew. This took place in between the previous verse of Luke and this verse of Luke. And he, in the hearing of the people, said to his disciples, Luke twenty forty seven, Beware of the scribes who were present at the time, by the way, who like to walk around in long robes. Now, this is getting really personal. Jesus is having this debate, this rabbinic debate. And he wins these things. And then suddenly, he looks at his disciples and it says, while everyone else is listening, and he says, beware of these guys right here. Beware of these guys. Why? Because they like to walk around in long robes and they love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Beware of these guys. They will receive a greater condemnation. So if the believers and the world can agree on nothing else concerning Jesus, we recognize this. He had no fear of men. No fear of men. I guess the question we have to ask is, as believers, do we feel the same? As believers, do we have no fear of man? It's difficult. And in all honesty, most of us in America probably will not pay for our lives for our faith. It's, uh, things are happening pretty quickly, by the way. But maybe we have different fears. We suffer from the fear of then you kind of fill in the blank. Maybe it's prejudice on the job, if you speak, or popularity at school. Isolation from family, that happens. You're welcome to come, but leave Jesus at home. You're welcome to the wedding. Leave Jesus at home. We don't want any religious talk at the tables. Fear of failure. It's another fear we might have. Fear of having to defend our faith. It's not always easy. You know, you have to have the Holy Spirit before you can understand the Word of God. And what, what's our weapon? The Word of God. Either way, we're not to fear men. We are, however, to fear God. And what that fear means is to recognize the holiness of God and bowing before Him in humility and servitude. That's how we are to show our fear of God. And it's always appropriate, by the way. And it's a privilege and an honor. So in Luke's account, this is where the confrontation ends. However, in Matthew, we read the following. Matthew 23, 1 through 3 says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, These scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you. Now, this is a little bit disconcerting, I think, for the disciples and the Jews that are there listening. They've walked through this whole thing with the parable and answers to the parable and trying to stump Jesus and he answers them perfectly. And he says, by the way, these guys right here, they're not, they're not here to help you. They're heretics. 
But then he turns around and he says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you. Seems to be a little bit of a contradiction, but this doesn't sound too bad for the leadership right now, right? Jesus is referencing Exodus 18.16 about the seat of Moses. And in Answers That Matter, we have this explanation. It might be true that the priests taught from the seat, but its primary purpose was the judgment at trial. There's the Pharisees and the scribes, but the priests... Now, where did that go back to? It went back to Moses. And Moses' father-in-law came up and he says, you know, what are you doing here? He said, I sit here 12 hours a day and they have to hold my hands and arms up and they have to just prop me up because I, I hear these civil suits all day long. You know, Samuel walked his dog on my lawn and the dog, you know. So what should I do, Moses? Go away. Go clean up the you know. That's what was coming to Moses. From murder to this. And so he delegated. And he went to the priesthood. So the priests were not only just giving law, now they were judging law. So when people talked about Moses' seat, they understood it as a civil court. We need to remember that the Levitical priesthood is what we would call our judicial system. And our judicial system comes directly from the Levitical priesthood of the Scriptures. Just as our system interprets the law of the United States, so do the Levitical priesthood interpret the law of God. And from all this comes various doctrines of law, such as baptism, justification, and sanctification. There were good things happening there. Exodus eighteen fifteen through 16, And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God, when they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them understand the statutes of God and His laws. Well, all of this sounds good until Jesus finishes the sentence. He's saying, Do as they tell you. And then He finishes the sentence, and He goes, But not the works they do. Do as they say, but not what they do. And he begins with, yes, obey the law, but do not imitate those who enforce the law. What a stark difference that is when, uh, when Paul, to the Corinthians, is saying, imitate me. Imitate me. And we look at that and say, oh, how gauche. And it's the exact opposite of what Jesus is telling the people about the chief priests, about the pastors. If we want to put it in today's vernacular, do what the pastor says, but I've watched what the pastor does. And don't do what he does. I hope you don't have to say that about me. Do what the pastor says, but when it comes to imitating him, don't do it. And then he proceeds to, to give them a list of things they do that are dishonorable and sinful. He says, don't do what they do, and here's why. In verse 4, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with one of their fingers. 
unbearable and unnecessary laws and edicts that they have no intention of keeping because no one is holding them accountable. Jesus is. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Don't you do that. Don't crave attention. For they make their phylacteries, which was a prayer box on a necklace, a scripture box, broad and with fringes on them. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others, prideful and boastful, craving flattery. Don't do that. Then Jesus instructs his disciples and those who are listening concerning proper perspective. He says, but you are not to be called rabbi. Why? For you have one teacher, and you are brothers. I'm not your rabbi. Even if I were Jewish, I'm not your rabbi. Even if you were Jewish, I'm not your rabbi. Christ is our rabbi. And call no man from earth, what? Father. You have one Father, and He's in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I think the greatest title, perhaps, a pastor can receive, shepherd. We all need shepherding. Pastors need shepherding, you know, too. You shepherd me, by the way, in many ways. You really do. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. This is an extremely confrontational and difficult thing to hear if you are one of these fellows with the fancy robes with the fringe in the synagogue, in the temple, with this carpenter's son who is stumping you with every answer he gives and then stumping you with every question he asks. And then with no fanfare, he looks to his disciples or everyone else is listening. He goes, don't be like these guys. Don't be like these guys. Have you ever heard the phrase, don't poke the bear. How many of you have ever poked a bear? Not physically. How many of you have poked a bear before? So there's something going on. And there's someone who has absolute authority, perhaps, in some area. And you're thinking to yourself, I want to fly under the radar. I don't want to be noticed. I just want to do my job, collect my paycheck, and go home. Now, the opposite of that is someone who has authority over you and you think there's something going on and you get a little bit irritated with it, so you begin to jab. Let a sleeping dog lie is another one. And I believe that Jesus is beginning to intentionally poke the bear here. Why? Because the cross has been his goal all along and the timing of his crucifixion is crucial. 
It has to happen at a certain time. It cannot happen before the Passover lamb sacrifice. It cannot happen after the Passover lamb sacrifice. It has to happen on the day of sacrifice. I believe this is Wednesday. Day of sacrifice is Friday. So he's poking the bear. And he becomes even more confrontational if you have a hard time believing that. In the next few verses in Matthew, it's kind of a long scripture. You can't follow along with it, but it's, it's referenced on your scripture sheet. So I'm just going to read it pretty quickly. Matthew 23, 13 through 16. So not only does he say, see these scribes right here, don't do what they do. And the Pharisees, don't do what they do. And the Sadducees, don't do what they do. Chief priests, don't do anything they do. And then he follows it up with this in Matthew. He says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, exclamation point. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Don't do what these people do over here because they are not going to enter into heaven. And not only that, they are making it almost impossible for the people they have influence over to enter into heaven either. It's important that whoever is leading you spiritually is speaking from the word of God. It's very important. Whether he has hair or not, it's very important that the pastor is speaking from the Word of God. It's the only truth there is. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. That's pretty abrupt. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who are with you to enter in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte convert. And when he becomes a proselyte or a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. A little bit confrontational. It's the equivalent of us sending out heretic missionaries. You have to be careful who you sponsor. In the name of Jesus, through your support, this person is going to influence people on a spiritual level. It's like us sending people out without vetting them. Not really knowing what they believe. Maybe it's because now we feel better because we have a missionary. Wrong reason. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. He asks this question, What makes the gold valuable? Is it the gold or is it the fact that it's in God's temple? If you say it's gold, wrong. Too much attention on the gold. He goes on to say this, You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? See, it isn't about value. It's sacred. It's a spiritual value. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it, and and everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple, swears by it, and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God, and by him who sits on it. Oh my, what? Heavens. It sounds so innocent. It even sounds religious. sounds spiritual. Oh, my. Whose? Whose heavens? 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. I think that's funny. You talk about an extreme. You strain out a gnat because you don't want to eat a bug and you're swallowing a camel. You ever been around a camel? Uh, you're a braver man than I am. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Greed and self-indulgence. Are you ever self-indulgent? I know, I'm the only one. I know that. Are you greedy? I know, I'm, I'm probably the only one that's greedy. Are you finding yourself in here at all? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, I like monuments visually. And I think it's wonderful because... Typically, monuments mark something in our past, whether it's our nation or whether it's something personal. We have monuments in, in graveyards. I find nothing wrong with any, anything like that, but this is kind of interesting to me. One of my favorite historical figures is Abraham Lincoln. I don't know if he was saved. There are historians that battle over that. It sure is a beautiful monument, though, don't you think? But if he isn't saved, it's just covering dead man's bones. It's worthless. But it's a beautiful monument. And God is saying, you're worshiping the monuments. And none of them are dead man's bones. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So the sons of the people who killed the prophets go around and polish the monuments. Why would they do that? It wins points. And they say, Jesus says, you've lived in the days of our fathers. We would never have taken part in what, the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. We don't have time to go into all this, so just hear it. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how, you, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? It's like going to a pastor's convention and say, how are you guys going to escape hell? I know you. Well, see, I can go to a conference, no one really knows me. This is Jesus talking. I know you. It's impossible for you to escape hell. Well, that's not very nice. It's not politically correct either. By the way, why was this judgment coming down right after he said, you tell me you would never have done to the prophets what your dads did. You're going to do it to me. In about 24 hours, you're going to do the same thing to me. And it's not your father's doing it, it's you doing it. 
We need to hear that sometimes. We do these things sometimes. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of you will kill and crucify. And some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute them from town to town. So that on... Uh, I'm sorry. So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. Upon you may the blood flow of the righteous from town to town. So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. There is a historical account of this, but it's not in the Bible. That the blood of Zechariah, a priest, he was murdered. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Chapter 21, verse 1 of Luke says this, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. Are you getting this picture? It's really confrontational, very tense, and I would say very uncomfortable for many of the Jews in that temple at that point. Because Jesus is just laying it out. And then suddenly Jesus looks over. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And this is the exclamation point he puts on the day. Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. We've said this before. God doesn't look at the amount you put in the offering and judge it by what other people gave. He judges what you gave by the sacrifice that you made. So we're going to close with this. We must be careful we do not misinterpret the lesson here. The lesson here is not that we should be so confrontational in our witnessing that we make people angry enough that they are driven to violence against us. I've seen militant, angry Christians. We are not... If, if they want to be angry with God, that's fine, but we should never give them a reason to be angry with us. The truth is, there was a divine appointment established before our world began for the purpose of glorifying God through the suffering, death, and resurrection of, resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is God's plan. It is a revealing of the darkness of the human soul that's taking place in this temple. An animosity inherent within all people toward our holy God. Now think about that for a minute. He was revealing a darkness that is inherent in every human soul. And the animosity that follows concerning a holy God. Our holy God. Jesus provoked nothing within the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and chief priests that was not already present. He provided nothing within them that is not already present within us. 
And what Jesus did in these scriptures was give them permission to act upon what lies dormant or not so dormant within all of us. He unleashed it. He gave them permission to begin the process through their wrath toward a holy God to begin the process of the crucifixion. And within these woes we read, Jesus was exposing to everyone there the sins that represented who they truly were, including the ones just listening. And Jesus could just have easily been speaking to us. Because way down deep inside, we are them if it were not for the blood of Jesus. But there's good news this morning. God God desires to change who you are at the deepest level. Every human being is born with a hostility toward God. It just we just are. It is inherent within us. We have no choice and no amount of good works can change who we are deep inside. We must be recreated in the image of the holy God who sent His Son to die in our place. How do we do this? Well, we confess and repent. And what does that mean? We admit that we fall, we fall, fall short of who God is. Fall short of the glory of God. We admit that we cannot fix ourselves. And we acknowledge that it is only through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that we can be recreated or born again in God's image. And that's the only way for salvation. Second Corinthians says this, we'll close. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. We're born again. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then as believers, we confidently proclaim this once we're saved. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me for the life I live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Those who receive Christ have been crucified with Christ. And we will be resurrected. New creation into heaven. Well, Lord, we are um, a stubborn people. And we're so self-deceived, by the way. I look at these scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, and I think to myself, how could they be so calloused and greedy? How could they be these things? And, um, and then by even thinking those things, I'm showing that I'm unaware. And uh, Lord, we are uh, so grateful that you have given Christ to us. And uh, we we rejoice um, in our resurrection with Christ. So, Lord, we love you and praise you. And we give you all the glory for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Blessings.